Did you know that while the ratio of world trade to GDP is much higher today than it was in the 1800s, this increase was not exactly linear? That the world trade collapsed as the result of the First World War and did not quite recover until the end of the Second World War? This and more today on Trade for Peace. Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. The opinions and statements expressed in the Trade for Peace podcast are entirely and solely those of the guests and the host. WTO Secretariat takes no institutional positions on matters of policy or of the WTO membership. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of Trade for Peace. Today, we have with us Kevin O'Rourke, the Professor of Economics at the NYU Abu Dhabi. Kevin is a member of the Royal Irish Academy and Fellow of the British Academy. He has served the economic history profession in a wide variety of capacities, particularly as President of the European Historical Economics Society and as Editor of the European Review of Economic History. His research interest focuses on the intersection of economic history and international economics. Kevin, welcome to Trade for Peace. Thanks for having me. Kevin, before talking about your work and research interests, we would like to get to know you. So what inspired your interest in economic history? How did you start this journey? Well, I mean, I'm Irish, as my name suggests. And in the early 80s, when I was an undergrad, we were still pretty poor. And if you come from a country that's pretty poor, you start naturally asking yourself why. And that almost inevitably is going to become a historical question. So that's the first reason I was interested in the past. And the second was that a couple of the more research-oriented professors in Trinity Dublin back when I was a student there were interested in, well, it was the history of economic thought which is a different subject. But I found it more interesting to read somebody like David Ricardo with reference to the economy that he was actually describing. So those are my sort of interests. But then the other thing that happens if you're Irish or come from any small country is you become interested in international economics because you can't avoid thinking about those things. And so when I went to Harvard, I ended up actually specializing in international And so how did I end up in history? It was an accident. That's often the story for academics. Uh, back in the 80s, people were quite often interested in doing CGE models of things, computable general equilibrium models, including in trade, which was my field at the time. So I took a course on CGE modeling and we had to write a term paper. So I decided to do it on the Irish famine. And at a certain point, a light bulb flashed in my head and said, you know, I could actually do this for my dissertation. It felt like cheating. It was too much fun. But um, that's really how it started. First, I want to say thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace to discuss your seminal work with Ronald Fenley, published in your book, Power and Plenty, Trade, War, and World Economy in the Second Millennium. 
I like the title Power and Plenty, which comes with layers of interpretations. But tell me, what is the thesis of your research in Power and Plenty? I actually, I'm not sure that it has a thesis in the sense that many books by economists on the past have theses, you know, Britain became rich because X. You know, it's not that kind of book, which I think is probably just as well, because if you say, say, you know, the West became rich because of something, you're almost certainly wrong, you know, because life is more co- <laughs> life is more complicated than that, you know. Uh, yeah. I think it was just that myself and Ron Findlay, who's who died late last year, uh, who was a wonderful oh, guy. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, he was he was just a great guy. And he was a trade economist. I knew him at Columbia where my first job was, and we would have have lunch together. And he was somebody who was really a trade theorist, but he was increasingly interested in the past. And um, I'd written a book earlier with with my thesis advisor, Jeff Williamson at Harvard, um, who I think was another reason I got into economic history, because I just realized, you know, this would be very easy <laughs> for Jeff, you know. And that book was about globalization in the late 19th century. And I may, I may come back to that. But if you're interested in the past, you always want to know what happened before, you know? Okay, so now I know the 19th century. So what happened before? What happened in the 18th and so on? And, uh, and, and, and Ron was on the same kind of journey. We And so we just realized that we had this common interest. He was already uh, writing on, on trade and the ever deeper past. So we decided to do a, a history of trade of, and we decided to make it global. Uh, insofar yeah. as that was possible. Um, and then even even though we both were coming at it as essentially people who are trained as trade economists, I mean, it just became clear to us that no matter how economistic you were, you couldn't write this story of international trade without thinking about governments and empires and war and colonialism and, and slavery and all of these kinds of things. And so it ends up becoming a much more general book that kind of covers, I suppose, world economic history through the lens of trade, but also brings in a lot of politics insofar as that's relevant to understand the story. And where the title comes from is, well, it reflects that fact that, you know, you can't uh, separate the political from the uh, economic, you know, you can't separate history of trade from the politics and the war and the geopolitics and so on. But also a lot of the people that we were kind of coming across in our, our writings, you know, these rulers and so on, they in their minds drew this very strong connection between trade and money and power and plenty. So, you know, you need plenty to be powerful, obviously. That's true today. You know, yeah. uh, that's why China, for example, is becoming more of an issue on the world stage. The reverse arrow of causation from power back to plenty you know, that actually being militarily powerful makes you rich. That's less obvious, and it's not something that we tend to believe anymore, but it certainly was believed back in, for example, the mercantilist period, and you can see exactly why, because if you were powerful enough, then you controlled trade with particularly lucrative colonies, and so that gave you money, and then the money made you more powerful, and you could get into a, I mean, I hesitate to call it a virtuous cycle, uh, because there was nothing particularly virtuous about it, but a, a cycle that's beneficial for you. So that's where the the title comes from. Very interesting. Your research covers quite a lot, but there are several themes I would like you to unpack for our audience. In Power and Plenty, you state that, and I quote, for much of our period, a pattern of trade can only be understood as being the outcome of some military or political equilibrium between contending powers, end quote. You also highlighted that 
and I quote, empires can be expensive, draining national treasures, but they can also allow trade to prosper, end quote. You cited one example in Genghis Khan as, and I quote, a great hero of economic expansion, which provided extensive trading space for merchants, end quote. Now, you and I know that economic history is laden with these themes and examples, and much of which, as you rightfully cited, is rooted in the Adam Smith thinking, and I quote, that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, end quote. What lessons can we draw from these themes you highlighted in your study? It has been 15 years since you first published. How are these concepts still relevant? So there's a couple of, of, of issues there. So the first issue is why do we draw a link in the book between violence and imperialism and expansion on the one hand and trade and prosperity on the other? And I suppose one way to think about it is that, you know, the further back you go in the past, the more anarchic is the world system in which states are, are operating. Uh, there's war between states. And if you go far enough back, there's, you know, violence within state boundaries, or maybe states aren't properly defined and so on in the first place. And so when you have, you know, someone like Genghis Khan creating, you know, uh, an enormous uh, empire, uh, which involves the death, the violent deaths of millions of people. Um, it was extremely brutal and bloody. But one of the consequences of that is that he's creating a unified space with unified institutions where he has the monopoly of violence, you know, within that space, you know, more, more relatively speaking, you know, which means that it's then relatively safe for merchants to travel, you know. So, so conquest creates some monopoly of violence, which makes it physically safe for merchants to travel. The further back you go in time, that's that's a real issue. But also it, there are, you know, uh, factors, you see, for example, the Muslim conquest where you have common language, you know, common currency, common culture and so on. And so then you get in, in that instance, uh, transfers of technologies, plants, uh, knowledge, trade, uh, you know, from North India to, uh, to the South of Spain, you know. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the great expansions of trade in the past are related to empires. That's one reason why Ron and I decided we couldn't just write it about trade. If you think about not just the British Empire in the 19th century, but the Iberian empires of the early modern period, you think about the Dutch and the British in South and Southeast Asia, you think about the the, the Muslims uh, during their golden age, you think about Genghis, and so on, and so on. So in the past, violence and empire and trade, and therefore Smithian growth, because trade does pretty predictably lead to Smithian growth in a pre-industrial economy. I mean, we see that as far back as Rome and, and probably a lot further. You know, that is all something that uh, applies in the past. Now, I don't think anybody's going to say today we need military conquest to create trade so we can all benefit from Smithian growth. So I guess the difference is that we're now living in a world where there is, I'm not going to say a universal rule of law, but there's more of a rule of law. There are rules about how states should behave and, and should not behave. Uh, I mean, the WTO enforces rules of law when it comes to, to trade. But more generally, we live in a rule-bound system until, of course, we don't, as with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is one of the reasons why that's so dangerous. So that's, I think, the big difference is that we've substituted the logic of expansion and integration through violence with the logic of uh, integration uh, through law. Maybe that's a very European way of thinking about it, but I think not just a, a European way 
of thinking about it. And so a lot of the lessons from the past aren't directly applicable, I would say, because of that different context. Yeah, but I, I would like us to, uh, I know you also spoke a little bit about the Lewis and Wiggins uh, sort of regions uh, and how these regions, based on conquests and based on uh, familial ties, uh, were able to consolidate. And because they consolidated, they were able to integrate better. And, and that served as sort of a, a vehicle to move fast in terms of trade integration. And then you talk about, you know, the, the different, the seven or six regions, you know, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, North Africa, and Southwest Asia. Uh, these regions uh, integrated through conquest, through marriages uh, and treatises. And over several, uh, I guess, centuries, they were able to integrate culturally, and that made it easy for you to have greater trade integration in terms of standards that made growth possible. I know they don't really highlight uh, in terms of Africa that the colonial experience did not really facilitate that kind of integration to really strengthen trade across the continent. Um, how do you unpack their logic in terms of how would you apply it to the African context where mostly LDCs reside? Huh? Well, if you're asking about the past and about the book, then there's a kind of a mea culpa. Africa appears in the book occasionally, but it's a bit of a, yes. a bit player. And that is something that Ron and I, I mean, I, I think we may actually say we regret this in the book. Uh, it was basically, we, there was only so much that we could do, but also, I mean, East Africa, for example, is very well integrated into the world system of the time because it's it's linked to the Middle East via via Arab traders and so on. And there's obviously a, right. an ancient slave trade that goes from uh, East Africa to Arabia and so on. But I suppose the further south and the south, the further west you get, the less integrated they are with Eurasia. There may be integrations within Africa, but we didn't. We didn't. We didn't cover that, nor did we talk about uh, the Americas until the Europeans get there, because obviously they were completely, completely distinct from the rest of the world until a, until a certain point. I suppose the African example does remind us that integration doesn't just lead automatically to wonderful Smithian growth. Uh, right. I mean, integration can be asymmetric in nature. There can be these classic uh, patterns of trade that emerged I suppose on a global level in the 19th century, but they go back much, much earlier, really, where you know the, the poorer region supplies raw materials, the richer region supplies uh manufactured goods. By the way, that would have been, you know, what was true for Africa would have been true for Western Europe, you know, before a certain point, you know, because Western yes. Europe is like it it it's the region most like Africa in the world economy yeah. uh for a long period because it's geographically very peripheral. You know, yeah. uh, it's only in direct communication with Eastern Europe and, you know, with the with the Muslims once once they come on the scene. And again, you know, the, the Western Europeans are are exporting uh, things like slaves and, and, and raw materials, the odd Frankish sword, this sort of thing. They are importing manufactured goods, let's say, from the Muslim world. And then there's a and then there's a reversal of fortune that is going to eventually happen, as we all know. And then what I would say about that is that different people tell that kind of story different ways, you know? Yeah, so yeah. the economist will always tend to look for the simplest explanation. And so you may end up saying something like, you know, Western Europe grew rich because it has these features that the other uh, regions don't have, or maybe they have bad features that Western Europe doesn't have, you know, that would be the logic that you would get in a sense, if you think about a multiple regression, where you have, you know, development on the left hand side, and then you have a bunch of variables on the right hand side, that's the logic, each country, their development is based on factors internal to that country or that region in that case. And I, I think because, you know, Ron and I were both 
historically minded, and because I am at this stage of practicing economic historian, I think we tend to think more about this like historians, which means it's more of a story uh, that is driven by things that are were sometimes quite unpredictable, like, for example, the Mongol conquests, uh, which devastated the Middle East, like, for example, the Black Death, which devastated the Middle East and Europe, but had very different long-run consequences. I mean, in Europe, it arguably leads to the economy becoming more dynamic and prosperous for various reasons when it had the opposite effects in the Middle East. So sometimes, and, and the other, the other, I think, point that I would make from the book, and I, I still say this to the students, you know, when we talk about world economic history, and why did Europe that was so peripheral and so poor end up becoming uh, rich? you know, when that didn't happen to Africa, for example, you know, is one thing is just look at the globe, you know, just look at the map. And what you see, if you look at the map is Europe and West Africa peripheral, right? But then once you expand the world system to include the Americans, well, I mean, the Chinese are probably not going to discover America, you know, the, right. the Ottomans certainly right. not going to discover America. It, it might be the West Africans, but if they don't get to do it, you know, it's going to be the Western Europeans, right? And yes. once they discover America, of course, at that stage, they've already been developing. But once they are there, then their position is completely central, just just literally central, you know? I mean, they are yeah. the the gateway between the Americas and Eurasia. And they have access to all of those resources of the Americas, which they can exploit in part using African labor and so on. So very often it's just dumb luck and geography and then accidents of history like the Black Death that drive uh, developments in history. That's sort of my overall perspective. And I suppose that was heightened during the course of reading, writing this book, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not a question of Europe grew because of, you know, magic factor X. I don't, I don't believe that account really. Yeah. Your book extensively discusses the economy in the second millennium, ending with a chapter on globalization at the dawn of the 21st century. How would you unpack some of these themes to address some of these challenges we face today. What lessons can we learn from economic history to better understand the relationship between trade and war? And are we learning or repeating it? To paraphrase uh, Churchill. I've already talked about the war empire uh, globalization link. We don't need empires to have trade anymore, thank God. There are other reasons why trade and war have interacted. So, for example, in the 1930s, you had countries, you know, maybe the have-not countries, countries that felt that they were unfairly deprived of colonies, or countries who, you know, whose supply chains were dependent on you know imports of raw materials from overseas in a context where they might be blockaded by powers with stronger navies, you know. Those kinds of countries end up becoming very worried about their own material dependence. And, you know, one logical response to that might be to go out and grab those raw materials through violence. And that's what you see in East Asia, for example. You know, you could get the raw materials by by selling stuff and using the money to buy the raw materials. But violence is always, and liberals, of course, are going to say that's the way to do it, you know, and then you're going to get, you know, Hitler. I mean, he actually talks about this. He says, you know, he could do it in this namby-pamby liberal way, but I've got a much more direct proposal to make folks. And, you know, you have similar uh, tensions in Japan 
if you read Adam Tooze's fantastic book on the Nazi war economy, or you know Michael Barnhart has a book about Japan, you see these kind of dynamics playing out. And obviously, the Southeast Asian invasion by Japan is all about raw materials, isn't it? So, so trade is great because it leads to specialization, division of labor, all those good things that Adam Smith talked about. And it's great so long as it works, uh, but it can lead you to feel a little bit vulnerable. And that led to very bad things happening uh, in the 1930s. We wrote this book, Ron and I, in 2007. So it was just before the global financial crisis. And at that time, I don't know if you remember, but there were concerns about rising food prices. Yes. Uh, and, and so there were a couple of uh, export uh, uh, bans on things like grain. Did Russia ban the export of grains? I can't remember. There was a few things like that going on. And so that was kind of in the back of our heads a little bit as we were writing this history. you know. And we said, look, it's actually really important, thinking especially about China, that rising powers feel confident about their ability to be able to buy what they need on the market by selling. Because otherwise, you know, things could always go badly wrong. Now, I mean, they haven't gone badly wrong yet uh, uh, by by any means. But you can see the potential today for trade to become more geopolitical. You know, and if trade becomes more geopolitical, then that becomes potentially dangerous. Is what I would say. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. Globalization brought both challenges and benefits in terms of international trade and economic exchange. But the world has been facing several economic crises. The subprime crisis in 2007 to 2008, the European debt crisis in 2010, the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as geopolitical turmoil and climate change related challenges. Given your expertise, what are your thoughts on the economic challenges the world faces today? Is it as bad as it looks, or has humanity survived worse? It isn't clear that humanity has actually survived climate change. Well, because it would be unprecedented. I mean, I guess there was an ice age very early on in our history, but actually not that many humans made it out at the other end of the ice age. So I, I think that is clearly the, the biggest challenge that we face, and it really is existential, you know, especially for these yeah. large poor yeah. southern countries who are who who really risk uh, large chunks of their territory becoming unlivable. And and there are implications, I guess, for globalization, aren't there? There because we're going to have to stop burning fossil fuels. So whether that is a, a high carbon tax that raises transport costs, or whether it's through quantitative restrictions, you know, unless we find uh, technological alternatives, I think the, the, the logics that are underpinning a lot of global trade, I think, will begin to unravel, uh, at least insofar as trade and physical goods is concerned. Yeah. Now, there's yeah. also globalization involving services, and that's that's maybe an entirely different kettle of fish. And that may be good <laughs> exactly. for some countries. And that may be different for some countries, you know? Uh, yeah. Although that then may imply its own challenges politically in terms of, you know, who wins and who loses and so on. Um, so, so I think that's the biggest challenge that we face. And I would say, and I would say that the other big challenge that we face, and you've already touched on it, is geopolitical, because 
it's not that you become existentially pessimist or anything, but the more you realize that just your really bad things can happen in, in, in random ways. And we saw that with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, and it wouldn't take too much imagination to, to, to think of ways in which it could get much worse, you know, if the Chinese were to do something, if, you know, the world were to split up completely in competing blocks or whatever. So, you know, I think I think managing the process of China's rise and India's rise you know, because India yeah. is going to be yeah, you know, exactly. bigger than China yeah. in terms of population, <laughs> not that far away from now. And and please God, they will yeah. also see their per capita incomes grow and so on. And and please God, sub-Saharan Africa will also grow, you know, uh, in per capita terms of, yeah. as, in terms of total population. I mean, all of these things are going to lead to you know, shifts in the equilibrium that has sort of kept the world relatively stable for a relatively long time. And again, if you look at you know the early 20th century, you can see how those shifts in relative power can end up uh, messing things up very badly. So, so we just have to cross our fingers and maybe hope that these existential problems that we all face as human beings, like the climate uh, problem, can be the glue that you know, keep us all together. But Kevin, uh, it seems that the world is indeed very different nowadays, and the current level of globalization has accelerated and intensified the ways that economic crises spread. Given that, in the past there wasn't exactly an institution regulating world trade at this scale. What role can the WTO play in addressing these economic challenges, particularly for least developed countries? That's a very difficult question. Maybe the way to think about it is to think about some of the tensions to which it's subject, because I think you've placed your you know finger on it. I mean, I mean, when we were reading this book, writing this book, but even before, I mean, here's the dilemma you face if you're a Westerner, okay, and you're yeah. sort of you think of yourself as being on the center left. You know, on the one hand, it is absolutely clear as daylight that poor countries need globalization to grow. Like, and, and when it works, it really works. You know, and we've seen it in Korea and absolutely. Taiwan and yes. Japan, and we see now is it Vietnam and so on. So, you know, if you have even a little bit of kind of, uh, if your ethical system uh, at all admits that we should care about people in other countries, then that's got to be, you know, a huge moral priority. So that's on the one hand, you know, but on the other hand, trade between rich and poor countries does give rise to tensions within rich countries, you know, and I mean, as a citizen of a rich country, yeah. you know, I don't like the fact that our countries are becoming and our societies are becoming more unequal. And, you know, in the 1990s, economists tend to dismiss the view that might have anything to do with trade. And actually, at that stage, the economic historians, this was myself and Jeff Williamson and many of Jeff's co-authors, we we were writing about, well, actually, in the past, if you look at the 19th century, there was globalization. It led to yes. shifts in income distribution. There were winners and losers. And not surprisingly, where the losers had power, you know, they did something about it. And you saw globalization unwind, you know. So that was that was that was globalization history that myself and and Jeff wrote. And myself and Ron talk about that in, in the final chapter of our book as well. So that's the big domestic political challenge that rich countries face, or one of them, one of the many ones. The, the challenge, how do you keep the, the people who are losing from all of this change on, on board? And, and the problem is you can talk about safety nets, but I mean, just think about it humanly. I mean, somebody, you know, people yeah, don't, yeah. hardworking people don't just want handouts, right? They actually want no. jobs, you know? So that's, Absolutely. that's, that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's this huge moral imperative to help poor countries develop and and so i don't know what the solution is actually my instinct is that we shouldn't let the best be the enemy of the good and that i think i think what my, this is my personal 
opinion now. I think that where we went wrong in the 80s and 90s is, you know, the, the liberal turn led to more market internationally, and that's fine, but it also led to more market domestically. And I'm not sure that yeah. that works politically. I think if you want more market internationally, there have to be counterbalancing mechanisms domestically to make sure that everybody is being pulled up uh, more or less in tandem with each other. And that doesn't just mean social safety nets and retraining and education and so on. It may require direct intervention in labor markets sometimes, you know, to, to help provide to provide jobs. And so we need a rules-based system, but I don't think the rules should go too far behind the border, you know, okay. uh, to put it that way. I think that we need to allow states the capacity to deal with the political challenges they face, because as we saw in 2016, you know, which came as a huge shock you know, Trump and Brexit to lots of people, yeah, but absolutely yeah. did not come as a shock to economic historians. Because, you know, you know, in a sense, mm. we had been writing about this for 20 years, you know. If all that the liberals are saying is, you know, we feel your pain, but sorry, we can't actually do anything concrete about it, then in democracies, there is going to be a backlash. So, so it's a very ca- careful balancing act that all of these organizations who are tasked with maintaining the international rule of law, uh, including in the economic sphere, are faced with. And my sense is we have to absolutely be rigid on the respect for the rule of law, but we maybe need to make sure that the rule of law doesn't overreach itself. You know, I think one of the most dangerous metaphors uh, is the metaphor of international integration. You often hear it in Europe, you know, European integration being like a bicycle, you know, it always has to go forward or else it'll, it'll topple over. I think that's absolutely the wrong way to think about it. I think that what we need to say is actually, you know what, this is a pretty globalized world. It's a pretty, it's a pretty globalized world, more globalized than anything we've we've seen. Maybe you know, okay, it'd be great if Myanmar got involved, or if North Korea got involved, or you know, we can think of a few other countries. But basically, yes. it's pretty, it's pretty globalized, you know. So, so maybe we should be now at this stage conservative uh, and try to hang on to it, and that means thinking politically and allowing domestic governments the flexibility to to shore up the whole system. I would like us to talk a little bit about trade for peace. You know, this is an initiative that came out of helping exceeding governments that would like to join the rules-based trading system. Many of the countries are also dealing with uh, fragile and conflict-affected states, uh, dealing with security issues. And, and this, the podcast also tries to highlight some of the champions that are looking at uh, trade as a vehicle to foster peace. If you had an opportunity to advise a, a government in a conflict-affected country, let's say South Sudan, for example, uh, I was just there uh, last month. The country is faced with a lot of challenges, global warming, uh, climate change issues with flooding in one region. Uh, then you have their transition period with the different warring factions uh, trying to work together to consolidate the military. As an economic historian, if you had to advise uh, a government like South Sudan, uh, that is going through this transition to uh, embrace uh, democracy, what would be one salient advice you would give to them as they try to move towards uh, reintegrating into the global economy and uh, joining a multilateral trading system? How can trade work for a country like South Sudan? I'm not sure how trade can work for South Sudan, (laughs) but I'll tell you how it worked for Ireland. So Ireland and Britain had a very conflictual relationship, I mean, for centuries. Uh, yeah. When I was a kid, you know, uh, yeah, there, it, there was a lot of nationalism in Ireland, a lot of very overt anti-British sentiment, and there was a lot of very anti overt anti-Irish sentiment in Britain. But how our mutual membership of the European Economic Community helped, actually, was that at the level of officials, 
You know, if you're meeting every month in Brussels uh, at a, an agricultural committee or at a fisheries committee, you yeah. just get you just get human relationships developing among mm. all of these officials mm. who might have not had very nice thoughts about each other, you know, just some years earlier. And everybody who was involved in the kind of Irish, British-Irish peace process will tell you that this was absolutely crucial. Just, just It was a way of building up trust. Uh, yeah. you know, and very often, you know, uh, maybe contiguous areas that might not have had the friendliest of uh, histories, you know, I mean, the Irish-British case, we we realised sometimes we had interests in common, you know, material interests having to do with some utterly boring issue, having to do with some tariff schedule or another. But, you know, the process yeah. of, you know, siding with each other and so on, I mean, it's not something that, it's not a magic wand, it doesn't happen overnight, you know, we're talking about building up trust over over decades, but, but ultimately, yeah. it bore fruit. So yeah, I I I think that's a that's one now that's elite that's a, that's the elite level, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, elites do matter. I think that's an excellent example. I think we saw that in Liberia when, as it went through its transition period. I think more dialogue between the different parties uh, helped to facilitate relationships that could then bring them to the table to forge our compromises and agreements to move things forward. Thank you for an excellent example, and it's been uh, quite interesting and a learning. Uh, conversation. So thank you very much. Now, Kevin, on a more personal note, let's go to our rapid fire question segment. This segment is a great opportunity for our audience to get to know you better. And if you are up for it, you will have 10 seconds to respond to five questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. A book you would recommend and why? Brad DeLong slouching to Utopia because I was in grad school with him and it's just been published. Your favorite economic history fact? I hope it's a true fact, but I, I, I believe that uh, during the Napoleonic Wars at one stage, the French thought it would be a very good idea to sell grain to the British who just had a bad harvest because this would drain Britain of gold and thus bring them to their knees. The notion that you would sell food to an enemy short of food uh, and this would be good for you and bad for your enemy is, is great. Your favourite period in history to study? Well, it's got to be the one that I'm studying right now, which is the 1930s. It's just everything that could go wrong does go wrong. And also because you know, I've been working for it, on the last, on it for the last 10 years. One lesson you've learned from economic history that you apply in your personal life? Um, that's a pretty tough one. I mean, I would say that studying history makes me suspicious of generalizations. Uh, about history and maybe that's a, a, something that you can apply in, in your personal life also as you think about your attitudes towards all sorts of things. One thing you would like to see happening in 2022? Uh, the unconditional victory of Ukraine. Thank you for the conversation, Kevin, and uh, your thoughts on the global economy today. Now, we'd like to end our podcast with just one last question. In just one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? Say law, the rule of law. The relationship between trade and peace has historically been complicated, but in today's world, I think it's pretty clear for all to see that whenever the rule of law is strengthened, both trade and peace end up being enhanced. That was our Trade for Peace champion in economic history, Professor Kevin O'Rourke, working on trade and war. Kevin. Thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace and sharing with us your story and experiences. And thank you for your impactful research, insights, and lessons learned from economic history.
Thanks very much, Axel. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into our episode, Lessons from History, Trade and War in the Second Millennium. Don't forget to follow us on social media channels. We are present on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Straight for Peace. I am your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at tradeforpeace at wto.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.